I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. We have a very, very sacred episode today. My guest almost needs no introduction, but you all know me better than that. I talk way too much to give no introduction. Our guest for today is Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, and wait until you listen to her message. Jen talks about, as a medical provider, treating the whole person, not just their medical diagnosis. Everybody that walks through the door of a therapist, a dietitian, a doctor's office, you are more than a diagnosis. And Jen pulls the lens back of traditional medicine and sees the whole person. It's really beautiful. Jen also talks about the fact that having any bit of suffering or struggles means you're sick enough. She even wrote a book called Sick Enough. You do not have to be in critical care to get the treatment that you deserve. And Jen talks about it in a really eloquent way. And what you'll also hear is in really beautiful metaphors. All right, everyone, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to a very, very special episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am beyond moved by our guest today, and I'm I'm proud to say she's a friend and a colleague. I know her as Jen. Some people know her as Dr. Gaudiani. Most people know her as Dr. G, which is how I will refer to you throughout this podcast. Hello, Dr. G. Karen, it is such a joy to be with you in this venue. I only wish we could be cuddled up together as we have been at so many different conferences, et cetera, before. I know. I know. It, it's going to happen, though. I I am confident that that there will be a cuddle session in our future. Dr. G, can you give the listeners a little background? Just tell us who you are and what you're doing because the work you do. I have goosebumps right now and I've known you for maybe 15 years, so I don't know know why, but go ahead. Tell us what you do. Oh, thank you. Let me tell it in a different way than I sometimes share it just to keep things fresh. I am an internal medicine doctor who specializes in eating disorders. And I'm going to start from my present day and maybe work backwards rather than build on on a on a timeline. It keeps my brain going in interesting different directions. Uh, and I want to start by acknowledging my privilege, actually because I've developed this habit since learning it from the wonderful professionals at BETA that became a part of NIDA, that I want to acknowledge to your listeners that I am aware of the fact that I am a white, able-bodied, thin-bodied, cis, heterosexual woman who has plenty of financial resources. And I just want to make that acknowledgement by means of establishing something that's near and dear to my heart and my values. And also to acknowledge that my body may well not represent that of the bodies and lovely humans listening to this podcast. I also want to acknowledge that I have a degree of health privilege that may be different from other speakers you've had on this wonderful podcast in that I myself am not recovered from an eating disorder. I have never had one. 
And I want to name that so as to be authentic. And I hope to share in the course of our conversation how incredibly dear this population of patients is to my heart and to my soul. But I do want to make sure that your listeners know from the outset that this is not part of my personal narrative in terms of my own lived experience. It has certainly been part of my personal narrative in terms of my professional passions and with relation to my family. So what I presently do is I run a clinic in Denver, Colorado that sees individuals from around the United States. We're licensed in a zillion states, both in person and telemedicine, who want expert medical support on what's happening with their bodies, whether measurable or unmeasurable, as a result of disordered eating or eating disorders. And my patients, I'm delighted to say, come in all sizes and shapes, all genders, all ages, and all stages of disease from I've never seen a doctor before to I've been sick for 40 years. And I am just, I mean, wildly passionate about, just begins to describe it, taking care of people as whole humans, recognizing the deep harms they've often come to at the hands of doctors and other medical practitioners in the past, owning my own internalized biases and the way they may show up with my patients and bringing my heart and soul and over a decade of medical expertise in the topic of the medical complications of eating disorders to each of my patients and working in a multidisciplinary team with dietitians and therapists from around the country and sometimes other practitioners in order to help remove medical barriers to recovery such that the recovery journey can continue a little less bumpily. That is what I do now. I absolutely adore it. And by means of past, I have come through so many interesting stages of my life. I did help run a top medical stabilization unit for critically ill adults with anorexia nervosa for many years. I have written a book called Sick Enough. I trained back East and came to Colorado 14 years ago because my husband and I at the time thought that it would be a great place to put two pretty type A people into a little bit more of a type B environment, which has been very helpful, although not universally so. And I am the oldest of three girls and the mom of two girls. My daughters are 12 and 15 currently. And I absolutely love parenting girls because as the oldest of three girls, there was kind of room for a bigger, small one and a smaller, small one in terms of ages. And that's of course how I see my daughters now. I always confuse their names with my sisters when I'm speaking about them. But the way that this whole topic entered my heart was that my sister had an eating disorder. And that started to show up when I was in medical school and just as she showed up for college. And seeing her through her bulimia nervosa, watching her struggle, watching the demons within, watching her brilliant, luminescent, incandescent personality fight with the darker demons of societal pressures, familial pressures, and the thunderclouds of her own emotional state, which are as passionate as her intellect is, really educated me well before I thought I was going to go into this field and gave me a big place in my heart for it. What I wanna say is it also opened, it not only gave you a big place in your heart, but it allowed you to see your sister as a whole human being. And you, because of who you are, took that and 
carried that through your medical training and brought it to what you do now. When you were just saying about your sister, the two sides that she had experienced, this is what you bring to your book, Jen. I'm going to keep calling you Dr. G so everybody knows that. Your book is so beautiful because it is not a medical book that is a complicated book for people that don't understand labs, you know, medical terms, whatever. It is a beautiful book that also incorporates metaphors. And one of your metaphors talks about the two-sided coin. And that's what I was thinking of when you were talking about your sister. This is what makes you such an important person in somebody's process. Because as I said, you see the whole person, not just the medical complications that are walking through your door. Can you share a little bit about that metaphor or because because I love it. There's so many metaphors, Jen. I'm going to call you Jen because I can't, I can't. I'm sorry, honey. I've known you for so long as Jen. You can call me anything you want. Okay. I would love to share that metaphor. So I was an English major in college and I have always found that speaking in metaphor seems to respect a common communication pathway between two people when there may be something of a language barrier or an experience differential, trying to speak in metaphors seems to be a rainbow bridge between two people that gets around some of the thorny stuff in the front of our brains. So I've always loved trying to find rich metaphors that seem to speak to my patient's experience by means of validating them, by means of connecting with them, and by means of maybe help bring, helping to bring light to both of us as we establish relationship as doctor and patient. So the metaphor of the two-sided coin is one that I've used for many, many years now. And as with all of my metaphors, it comes from learning from my patients and then trying to process it in ways that seem to be useful. And the way that it goes is, and I want to be very respectful and say, of course, this is not going to apply to everybody. That, And I always hold up my, my hand, palm up. I'm Italian, so I speak with my hands. Many of my patients have lived their lives being celebrated for what I would call the gold side of their coin. And the gold side of their coin is often that they are intelligent and hardworking, diligent, determined, resilient, positive, capable, accomplished. These are all wonderful traits. I'll make note of the fact that it takes an ableist society to vaunt these traits above all others. And we do live in an ableist society, but these are of course, independently lovely traits. So many of my patients have lived their lives being praised by coaches, parents, teachers, and to a certain extent, peers for these really wonderful, gold, bright parts of themselves. The problem lies when we don't allow them to flip that coin over. And when I talk about a golden bright side and a darker side, I don't put any moral valence on that. But the important thing to know is that if you're that golden on the golden side of your coin, most people have some degree of balancing traits that come with those really astonishing ones. And those can include a greater need to be loved and reassured and held and comforted than they feel they see in other people around them. They might need more recharge than their peers. They might need more comfort. They might need more encouragement. And they might come with a streak of flaring really bright and then needing to go really dark 
to be able to bring the energy back up again. But the problem is because we do live in an ableist society, those traits aren't celebrated and acknowledged from the very outset. They're not even given words to say, you know, gosh, you have this amazing energy and your compassion is limitless. I also honor the fact that you're gonna take longer than your peers to recharge and be ready to go again. If we could say that to our kids from the get-go, things would be different. But when that darker side of the coin isn't acknowledged, it can come to feel shameful. It can come to feel like too much. That all people want of me is my golden side. And no one's holding space for the fact that I'm both and that that's fucking fabulous. So when that darker side of the coin isn't named, nurtured, embraced and celebrated, much less supported, it can come to feel so big, so out of control, so shameful, so at odds with what everyone quote unquote wants me to be, that it can pull people into a place where it is unbearable. And I respect that sometimes eating disorders can numb that or distract from that discrepancy. It reminds me, and you know, please let me know if I'm going in a different direction. It reminds me of one emotion can be labeled, and I put label in air quotes, good or bad. And it reminds me of how I, I use the term emotional. I am a very emotional person. There are times when people say to me that, you know, it's so wonderful, you're emotional, you're expressive. So when I'm articulating it in a positive way, right? Then, and I'm going to I'm going to say this is this is something that happened with my mother who everybody knows I love Sylvia more than anyone in the world. So this is not saying anything negative about my mom. I was upset about something once and she said to me, Karen, sometimes you're so emotional. And I said, I hope you honor that because yes, and because I'm so emotional, I care for you. I love you. I do think like, and and by the way, I'm not like throwing this as I'm saying this out loud. It sounds like I'm going, listen, because of that, but because I'm emotional, there's, I, I'm in a range of emotions and you can't just say, I love how emotional you are when you support me and you encourage me and you honor me. But ooh, when your emotions get a little, mm, no, that's a little too dark. And I think that's so confusing for anyone. And again, Sylvia, I love you. <laughs> so, but do you see what I'm saying? One word can be two sides of the coin. That's absolutely right. I think that's a great reminder. And I think part of that quote unquote darker side of the coin is an exquisite sensitivity to feedback and to taking the negative as being an excruciating experience of shame rather than of, yeah, okay, well, I didn't do this quite right. All right, try again next time, do better next time or not, you know? And so while I'm not a therapist, of course, and I, and I never try to play one and I always ask my, parent, my patients to have therapists in our work together, I really do deeply embrace the opportunity to know them as a whole person and to find out what their whole story is. Because if I understand their story and their values and goals, I'm less likely to make assumptions and to impose my will or my vision upon them, as is really easy to do when there's power in the room with a physician. But I have found that if I listen to their story in the course of our lovely initial two hour in, intake session and hear their goals and values, I can start to make sense of where their body shows up in the narrative presently 
again, whether it's in measurable or unmeasurable ways that they're suffering. And I can help create a relationship with them that I hope is, is healing, that feels seen and deeply respected, that feels authentically excited and hopeful and cheerleady and also brings good science. But I do love that rich sense of truly getting to know my patients. It is such a privilege to practice medicine this way. When you talk about respect, the whole person, all of these things, it it brings to light how beautiful your holistic vision is of, I call them clients, you call them patients. And I'll tell you where I'm going with this. I'd like you to talk about the Gaudiani Clinic. And I know one of the things that's very unique about your clinic is the level of, of illness that you work with. On the same note, you also wrote a book called Sick Enough. So you're not saying, oh, no, 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 you have to be, you know, so sick that nobody else will work with you in order for me to hear your story. All you, you, it's sick enough. And I say this all the time to clients. This is not a competition. And if it is, I don't want you to win it because winning is typically dying. So I, I'm not even sure where to go with that, but this is just how wide of a lens you have when you're working with your patients. So I guess what I'm going to start with is, can you speak to the clinic? And then can you talk about the book, Sick Enough? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you so much. You know, I think because I worked with critically ill hospitalized patients for so many years, some folks can be a little bit nervous about reaching out for help because they think that somehow that's all I do outpatient too. And the reality couldn't be different. I am a primary care provider for people with eating disorders at all stages of their illness. I truly am. Um, and, and my partner is as well. Um, this is a clinic that continues to honor the vital need for higher levels of care whenever necessary. And I, I warmly embrace when patients need to be referred up because they need a higher level of structure or oversight or support. But what's so fun about our clinic is that we're trying to redefine what it means to receive medical care for an eating disorder. I am really interested, my learning edge as a provider is to continue to defy stereotypes and trainings that I got throughout my history as a physician and challenge my own desire for order and a perfect sequence of events leading towards a linear, smooth recovery, which, you know, I mean, if anybody finds one of those, let me know, because I'm not sure I've seen one yet myself, and continues to try to challenge a quote unquote right way to do things. And instead say, nope, fuck all that. A lot of that's patriarchal. A lot of that is imposed upon us by a bunch of health privileged people who view as rigorous what I would consider closed minded and narrow. Nope. Let's throw all that out. How do we understand someone's story and present situation and meet them there and set a pace of change that is challenging but tolerable? How do we question our own medical thinking about if something can't be measured, it must not be real? And instead, wait for it, let the patient tell us what their lived experience is and start from that point, whether I can put a number on it or not. And often with my patients, I cannot. And so we end up in this incredibly fun space where, you know, we're, we're treating patients who are working on getting over their eating disorder, as well as working on 
there's severe in, you know, IBS, they're severe digestive trouble, their allergic reactions, their dysautonomia, and their postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS. We're working to help patients who feel like their body is chaotic because people have told them before, I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't know how to make you feel better. It's probably all in your head you just have to get better from your eating disorder and then you'll feel better. Well, you know, sometimes that's true and sometimes that isn't. So rather than make these broad statements, what's so exhilarating about the clinic and the amazing women that I get to work with in it is that we're trying to challenge our own misconceptions that we were trained in and provide care in a super different way. So I see people of all body shapes and sizes, all levels of acuity. And each time we really just try to start with, how do I honor your right to make decisions about your body? How do I honor your autonomy as your own person? How do I big sister you? Because I, you know, given my past, I definitely feel a sense of sisterly love for every single one of my patients. How do I bring that to you so that you can start healing prior trauma with medical doctors, whether that has to do with size stigma, misdiagnosis, or, or just plain old, you know, bad language that, that was harmful in the past, so that you can imagine a world in which things are different and in which you're living your values. That is what is, is just completely so exciting to me. In addition to yes, right evidence-based medicine and the right medications and the right diagnostics and all of that stuff. So, so I think it was that that really educated my desire to write my book because I knew that there would be so many people that I would never have the joy of being able to take care of one-on-one. -on -one. And, and so I wrote it with a lot of vignettes of patients. I wrote it with the hope that I could be representing enough of a diverse type of patient clientele that anyone looking at the cover with its multiple portraits or reading through the cases could say, oh my gosh, I see myself in this. And they would have that sense of, oh, I've never thought I was sick enough to make change. I've been told by doctors to diet when I was already in my eating disorder and they caused me harm and I knew I wasn't sick enough to come to someone's attention. Or I was ignored because my body didn't look like someone's body that would have an eating disorder. Or no one knew what to do with me because they said it was all in my head. My hope is that anyone picking it up can either read through the whole thing or look through sections that are specific to them and say, oh, if I have this, if I have anything in my body related to how I'm caring for it, I am sick enough to get help and make change. Let me ask you a question because I have, and I say this all the time, I have a few clients in mind. I have a few clients in mind, some that you've actually worked with throughout your years. And I hear you when you say, now I hear you with my healthy brain, my very well-nourished brain, my brain that gets plenty of sleep, has plenty of support, has, you know, all these things going for me. So I want to start by saying that. I hear you say, I want to honor where you're at, which we all do. You tell me what your body needs. You tell me where your body wants to be. And I'm now going to be some of my clients who are severely malnourished or binging and purging, you know, extensively. And they're saying to you, well, Dr. G, I want to stay at this super low weight or I want to, you know, purging relaxes me. Like, how do you... How do you work with that? And and by the way, we both walk a fine line. Doctor, therapist, then include the dietitian, the psychiatrist. We all want to honor the person sitting in front of us and 
they are not always thinking clearly. And how do you, how do you work with that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with greater and lesser success, depending on the day and the patient, you know, I, I have to stay incredibly humble being a practitioner in this field and recognize that by no means do I always get it right. And by no means does the patient always end up with exactly the outcome they hoped for or that their partner or their parent hoped for. So I wanna be very humble. My experience though, is that when someone comes to our clinic, they're choosing to spend money, a fair amount of it, because they want something to change. Now that something may not be, I want to fill, check all the boxes of what a standard full recovery looks like. They may not, but they're coming for a reason. And so that's why I always start with, what do you want for yourself? What they might say is, well, Dr. G, I'm terrified, for instance, in someone with anorexia nervosa of gaining weight. I'm terrified of my body changing. I'm even terrified just to nourish and care for myself differently but I would like to graduate from college. I would like to go to college. I would like to have a family someday. I would like to finish my medical training and be a doctor. I would like to be able to play with my grandkids. I would like to not be so exhausted. I would like to not be in so much pain. So I start there. What I don't start with is a cookie cutter that I try to fill every patient into that says, unless you're doing X, Y, and Z perfectly, we have nothing to do with each other, we're done, your recovery is done, it has to be my way or the highway. That said, especially with my younger patients, I use my medical expertise and my voice of authority to speak to some of the voices that I know are in there because I've heard them and spoken with them so many times through the years. So for instance, if I have an 18 year old patient who has anorexia nervosa and has been sort of like, well, I'm motivated, but you know, it's, it's just really hard and there's been a lot of stress and you know, I, I am really planning to go to college next year, um, but I'm just, it's, it's really difficult for me to make change. I'll say very clearly and kindly, here's the situation you are going to restore weight, eat more than is comfortable, and sit with emotions that are hard. That's going to happen. What you can control is where that happens, outpatient or residential. There is no third way. And anorexia is gonna tell you, oh, there is a third way. We can just get by with a little bit of behaviors, a little bit of underweight, and look how well we do. Look at our grades, look at our accomplishments, look at our feats on the sporting field. You bet your ass there's a third way. And I'll say, no, my friend, there is not a third way, not at your age, not with people around you who understand how vital it is that to nourish and rest your spectacular body will be the priority of those who love you. So this is going to happen. You get to decide where. I'd like to see you outpatient because an outpatient, we can go a little slower. You can keep doing things that you love in your life that motivate you and remind you why you're doing the work in the first place, as long as you're doing the, the recovery work. And if you can't, that's okay. Your treatment. And then you can work on it there. But I got your back here. So you want to try this with me? And what's so satisfying is that even if the eating disorder squeals at that, and it does, I think my patients also feel a sense of relief. Like, oh, okay, there's a boundary here. I know what I'm doing. I, I know, okay, I can see this person will be an ally to me. And this is super scary to think about change but if I'm honest with myself, it's also super scary to think about still living in my disorder. There are two things that I want to point out. One, when you talk about the 
the way that treatment used to be, that it was sequential and there was a, a, an exact way of doing it with a little bow or your your example of there's, you know, I don't put everybody in a cookie cutter sort of, you realize by doing that, we are actually just enabling their concept, their eating disorder concept, which is there is only one way to be in life. There is only one path to take. There is only one sexual orientation to be. There is only one body size. There is a, we're trying to say, wait, hang on. Let's take a step back. What are the options? Because I'm unique. You're unique. The person next to us is unique. So just by expanding on the treatment options and the and the 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 recovery options we're saying it's okay do it let's this is where i think you're saying go to your inner wisdom what do you need and then i think what you and i both do well is also give people permission to struggle and say, I honor a client when they say to me, Karen, I binged for two days straight. And I say, I don't mean great, like great, glad you did it, but great. Thank you for bringing this to me. Let's explore what happened. What were you looking for? I know that some and, and what I want to say is maybe younger clinicians and doctors and younger in their experience. And by the way, rightfully so, get frightened. What you and I are working with is a, a high mortality rate of, a, of an illness. This is not, so I get it, but I also know if I've never invited the client to bring all of themselves into the room, I've lost, I've lost it. There's really nothing happening. It's just an it's just an exchange. And so that's what you do as well. You say, bring me the whole narrative. Let's work with all of it. No shame, no judgment. It all it's all important. That's what I've always known for you to do really, really well. I really appreciate that. Again, I mess things up. I mess things up and I learn. I try to model for my patients that it's safe to correct me. Um, memorably, a couple of months ago, I got excited about someone's experience that they told me they had done. And I said, add a girl. And my patient very bravely stopped me and said, Dr. G, I'm not a girl and I don't appreciate being spoken to that way. I said, thank you so much. You're absolutely right. So the more I can create healing experiences that allow patients to speak up for themselves and advocate for their bodies, the better things go. And again, I, you know, I, I don't get it right, but I do believe that while love can't prevent eating disorders and love can't help you know, can't heal eating disorders, that it is only love and relationship that can lead people out of eating disorders and into healing. That with the right team and with family education, there's this feeling I have that when a patient sees themselves in a different way than the eating disorder has told them they are, when they can imagine a different life and a different way of, of holding the sadness, of holding the, the pain. And when they have real relationship with their team members, things can shift, which feels exciting. It feels like a lot of responsibility. It feels like something I'm gonna, again, I'm gonna mess up time and again, and then try to repair. But it's so much, you know, the medical side of caring for someone with an eating disorder is so much more than knowing how to interpret the potassium or the BUN. It's so much more than prescribing the right bowel medication. There has to be this sense of we are in this together 
and I have your back unconditionally. You are in my heart. Whatever you bring to me will be acceptable and loved. And in the final analysis, while I care deeply about you, I work on trying not to be too attached to the results to say, you're not doing this for me. You're not gonna disappoint me if you had a bad week or if you're relapsing. I am here to keep reflecting back to you what you want most for yourself. I know I, I, I've already gone to one or two of your metaphors, but I want to go to another one. And it, and it is in your book, Sick Enough. And I'm, I'm also, as you're talking, I'm, I'm a very visual person. I visualize things in my head all the time. And I'm imagining as you're talking to clients and they're like, yeah, but Dr. G, like my labs are okay. Or, you know, this came out and it's making me think of your metaphor of the house on fire. I love that metaphor. I want you to talk about that because I have so many clients that say, my labs are fine. I'm totally fine. And of course, now, you know, with, or, or, uh, you know, this is, this is one that gets, I get all the time, but my daughter's not emaciated yet, or my son's not emaciated. So, and I think this, this is not just about weight. There's so much more going on inside. And again, anorexia nervosa is not the only eating disorder, right? And so, wow. But how do you, can, can you explain the house on fire? Because it's such a great metaphor. Thank you. I would love to. So a lot of the time, probably all of the time, somebody who has an eating disorder has a really strong denial mechanism across diagnoses. And I absolutely want to highlight that I see people of all eating disorder types and all body shapes and sizes. And I'm a very passionate weight inclusive provider who practices under the health at every size model. But the reality is, is that most people with eating disorders have a piece of denial that keeps them from recognizing what their body is going through, how their behaviors may be contrary to their values and may be harmful. And so, like you said, patients come to me and they say, Dr. G, my last doctor told me I was fine. My labs are fine. My vitals are fine. My EKG is fine. Uh, I, I have nothing measurable that says I'm ill. Um, Dr. G, if anything, doctors have told me to lose weight. One of the terrible harms of Western medicine. So why are you telling me that I have an eating disorder or that I need to nourish myself consistently and abundantly and rest my body. This seems ridiculous to me. And so I tell them the house on fire story, which is this. Let's imagine in this case, I'll just pick a, a female pronoun that there's a young woman standing in front of a burning house. The fire department comes screaming up and they say, we're here to put out your fire. And she says, what fire? And they say, well, your, your fire, I feel the heat. I, see the flames. And she goes, oh, no. If I had a house fire, it would be so hot, the sidewalk would be bubbling. And because my sidewalk isn't bubbling, I couldn't possibly have a fire. And the firefighter understands her to be mentally ill, and he puts out her damn fire. So when, so I tell that story, and then when patients try to pull the old but I'm getting a 4.0, but my labs are normal, but my weight is not the worst it's ever been, but my weight is normal. I'll just say, oh, house on fire. Because I smell the smoke and I feel the heat and I see the flames. And I keep encouraging them to see that wellness is not defined necessarily by something you can measure. Wellness is something as I resist the pull of healthism, that this individual will define for themselves. And if they want to use some of my Western medicine criteria also, that's fine. But wellness never takes the form of an eating disorder. And eating disorder never makes you well. I also want to say that 
just because your labs are fine in that moment doesn't mean that one significant binge purge episode, one time that you were exercising at such a low weight. I I remember, and and you know, every once in a while, I think we all need to check in, or maybe I just love you so much I wanted to call you, but I called you about a client because I was like, I need, I need to consult with you because what I'm hearing myself say sounds right. But when I say it to some of the other people on the team and the client, it's not internalizing and it's a sick client and their labs are fine. And they're, and I was like, Jen, just so I may, I need to hear this from you. I'm correct in the fact that at any moment that person could unfortunately drop dead or have a stroke or whatever it is. Because I, every once in a while, we, we do, we sort of get lost in like the, wait a minute, I, I know this, I know this is right, but I, and this is why I feel so fortunate that I have friends like you in my life where I can call and say, I need a consultation, but it's almost as if, if you don't see it, it's all sort of like out of sight, out of mind. And I think you have no idea what's happening to your insides. You have no idea what's happening again from one bad binge purge cycle could throw everything off track and kill you. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And even beyond death, which is the worst outcome, of course, there is so much suffering that people with eating disorders experience So they might say, well, Dr. G, my labs are normal. So why are you telling me to do things differently? And I might say, how does your stomach feel? When you eat an appropriate meal on meal plan, does your stomach feel comfortable, delighted, peaceful, satisfied? Do you go about your day joyfully? Or do you feel bloated, full, nauseated, achy, and obsessed with hashing and rehashing what you just ate and whether it was the right thing or not. Because I don't care how good your potassium is, if you feel any of the above, that's why we need to make a change. That reminds me, and I swear everybody, this was not a podcast about metaphors. We are not titling this podcast, Dr. G's Metaphors. But, you know, one of the other things that you write about in the book, and there's so many things that you write about in the book, but this is so common. You talk about, and, and I'm going to get this wrong, so so please, I want you to, to, to say it, but talking about when clients start feeding, you talk about the difference between the horse blanket and the tissue, or can you can you speak to that? Because by the way, that's one that like you and I are smiling at each other right now while we're reflecting on it. But that is an enormous hurdle for clients with eating disorders who are so hypersensitive of every feeling in their body. So I will never minimize somebody's discomfort during the process, but you talk about it beautifully. Can you explain that? Absolutely. This is particularly applicable, and I have metaphors through the book that are pan-applicable or that are more specifically applicable to those with anorexia nervosa, who might say as they begin to eat again, Dr. G, I can see my lunch. My stomach sticks out so far after I've eaten that my brain instantly goes into really body dysmorphic places. And and it really messes with me and it trips me up. And I say, okay, let's talk about the balloon metaphor. So the balloon metaphor is if I blow up a balloon, I tie it off and I put it here on my table. If I put a thin sheet over that balloon, you're gonna see every contour of it. If I throw a thick horse blanket over the table, you're gonna have a sense maybe that there's a balloon under there, but it's not gonna be nearly as prominent. Similarly, when someone with anorexia nervosa begins to nourish again, their gut, which previously was a floppy little miserable limp tube sitting there empty, now has 
some digesting food, some gas, and some stool moving through it, like the balloon. But because they don't have visceral fat and robust muscles, their abdominal wall hangs over that balloon like a thin sheet and you can see everything. Whereas I'm grateful to have a horse blanket so that almost no matter what I eat, my stomach looks about the same afterwards. And I say, let's reframe this see my meal phenomenon and understand that only emaciated people show their stomach after they eat. So let's understand what we're really seeing and show ourselves compassion. It's, it's so beautiful. And, and again, there, there's so much, you know, and, and this is not a plug for your book. I just, I just love your writing. And so your book does talk about everything, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, orthorexia, males, women, transgender. I mean, it is, it, it covers it all. How, I, I don't even think I've ever asked you how long it took for you to write this book. Well, rather than use a number, which might possibly trigger people in the achievement accomplishment world, what I'll say is that I wrote most mornings before my kids were up for the day, only Monday through Friday, and took every weekend off. And each morning I would write for a period of time, often by the fire with my slippers and my sweats on, and I would just write what I could for that day and then give myself grace to be like, okay, that's all I can do for today. And I spaced it out and just went at it consistently over time, which is very unusual for me. I'm a super procrastinator. Ask anyone who's written an academic paper with me. Oh my gosh. I mean, I have one on my desk right now that I'm dying to finish that's two years in the making. But this book I felt so passionate about. And when I had imposter syndrome around, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if I'm an expert on this particular thing. I had to do more research to be able to speak authentically about it. I would just try to say, say it like you say it to patients. Say it like you know it. This is what you do day in and day out. Try to speak it like you know it. And your, your patients will hear your voice and those who don't know you We'll, we'll get to understand this voice. And so that's what I did. And, and I was really tired by the end of it. You know, I'm a girl who does very well with concurrent recharge and self-care. And I was really tired by the end of it. And I gave myself a good long break after. I bet. I, I think it's interesting that the, the better we know ourselves, the more compassion we have towards actually what keeps us alive and good in the world. Like I, you know, most clients don't know. I, this week, I took the week off of clinical. I, I've, I've realized that every four months, that's become my, my number. Every four months, Jen, in order for me to be a really good clinician, I need one week off of clinical work. Doesn't matter what I do. Does I, and so I just, I love that. I, I don't know if that's as you get older, you get wiser, or you get gentler with yourself. So you allow yourself. To, and I do it unapologetically. And the best thing is, is every single one of my clients say, oh, good for you. Well, that gives them permission to. You do it as a beloved, respected figure. Maybe they can do it as well. So many of us grew up in households where for one reason or another, a culture of constant productivity was highlighted. And that's not as helpful as it could be, you know? I mean, I really try to model for my daughters when I get under a blanket and grab a nice dragon book, because I love me some YA fantasy literature and a nice snack and I just sit there and I read for an hour or two, I name it. I say, bunnies, mama is tired and I'm going to cozy up on this couch and recharge. Anybody want to join me? Because I want them to see that my worthiness is not tied up in my own soul with a constant measurable productivity. That 
leads me to shift gears and it's a hard shift. You and I were talking before we started recording this and we were talking about how a, a big part of this podcast is to share with listeners that life outside of an eating disorder can still be complicated, can still be messy, can be glorious, can be gratifying, can be fulfilling, all of these things. And you were talking about your transformation. And I'm wondering how you feel if you would like to share what what it is that we were talking about. Yeah, thank you. I would love to. I, I haven't talked about this a lot and I'm I'm still in a, in a state of active transformation, I think. But when I understand the traits in myself and the work ethic that got me some of my early opportunities, that got me into medical school at the skin of my teeth, I got into one med school that I applied to, that made me successful as I was a young physician. I realized that I've had to challenge a lot of those same traits as I've gotten older in order to show up best for my patients, for myself, and for my family. And I think what that looks like to me is challenging some of that good little girlism that many female professionals in particular feel, where we still have a sense that if we don't do things by the book, the way the men told us to, then we're gonna be found unworthy and we won't get to keep doing it. And for some, this is a reality that they don't have the kind of professional privilege of you know, being able to call any kind of their own shots. And in fact, they're continuing to tow various lines that center very narrowly around embodying certain temperaments or, or appearances in a workspace. But for me, because I have this great fortune of having opened my own clinic and that I can be a leader within it and, and you know, a leader within the field, I'm really interested in challenging that in myself so that I actually show up better for the patient so that without apology, I take two weeks off at the end of December as I do every year now to spend with my family, making some patients mad that I'm not there for them and others delighted that I'm modeling work-life balance. I think it's a matter of challenging in myself also old messages of worthiness and of showing gratitude for all of the good that I have. Having had so much privilege in my life, for many years it was a struggle for me to not work the absolute hardest I could because I thought that was my way of showing gratitude and and sort of giving back to a system that has made me feel very fortunate. And then I realized those things are unrelated. I can work with a good work ethic and be very kind and compassionate to myself and not have to be working at the very edge of my capacity in order for the work to be worthy, useful for patients, and to leave me the energy that I need and want to live my life with my husband, my daughters, my friends. So I think that my pathway has really been challenging that there are right ways to do things, that you always have to say yes in order to be thought of as a good, kind, respectful person. Boy, saying no shows so much self-respect. And some people can't say no, but where they are able to assert their autonomy, I really honor that in them and in myself. It's so interesting that we both just talked about honoring ourselves 
in order to actually be our best version of ourselves for our passion, which is our clients for you patients. And what a, what a concept shift in our brains. It's really remarkable. And I have noticed my life has, as, as I walked away from my own eating disorder, as I walked away from the concept that I have to fit into this cookie cutter plan, my life very gradually, not, you know, not like, very gradually has just, but in exponential ways, if that's, if I can use those two in the same breath, grown to the life that I always wanted when I was in the eating disorder, Jen. When I stop and pause and listen, and again, nourish myself, sleep, you know, stretch, reach out to people, all these things, it is spectacular. That can be very scary to do because people can dream about a life they might want that has more connection, more vibrancy, more adventures. It can be so terrifying to give up the confines and the unpleasant but knowable rules of an eating disorder and have that leap of faith that those desired outcomes might be there for you. Because it's very, it, it's very much more comfortable in some ways to say, well, I don't have these things because I have my eating disorder. I never have to test whether if I got rid of it, would they really be there? Because what a heartbreak it would be if they weren't. But what I try to tell my patients when they find that they're at the edge of that fear cliff is, what I've heard you telling me is that following the rules of your eating disorder has not brought you the things that matter most. We know that's true. We don't know whether recovery will bring you joy, connection, love, experiences, but we know the eating disorder can't. Let's try something different. I also say, you're right. There are some things that you want that aren't going to work out the way you want them to. I don't get everything I put my mind to. Although I have, I, I am gentle with myself. I have compassion. I learned how to sit in disappointment. I learned how to sit in sometimes embarrassment. I learned how to sit in fear. So no, you don't get everything you want as a recovered human being. That's, that's unrealistic. That's using another eating disorder thought. If I only get to X, Y, and Z weight, everything will be great. Oh, once I recover, everything will be great. No, you'll just be present. And present is really, really, really fucking cool. I, I since taking this week off of clinical work, um, I have been doing some podcast interviews, which for me is pure joy. I have noticed throughout the week and not in a, in a depressive way, I've laid in bed in the morning and I can feel my eyes filling up with tears. And Jen, some of those are tears of gratitude. Some of those are tremendous tear of sadness for what's going on in the world. Some of them are tears for my father who I lost 15 years ago, but it's all good. It's okay. And this is one of the reasons why I take a week off every four months because it's okay to feel all these things. I actually feel really good when I'm sitting there and I have those tears. I don't, I'm not happy with what's happening politically in the world. My, my throat is closing up as I say that. I am not happy with COVID. I'm not, I'm not, but it's here and I need to be able to cry and move through it. And so sometimes we just have to stop and say, you know what, I just need to feel. The image that I have in my head 
is that it's on these weeks off that you renew your commitment to both sides of your coin, to, to the painful and the glorious aspects of being an emotional person. And they keep you whole. Yeah. I'm sorry to say that we have to start bringing this to a close. I, Jen, I just love you so much. I, I, I feel so honored, like I said, to, to have you in my life. And, and, and I feel really honored to have you speak on this show and, you know, just use your brilliant words and, you know, for all those that are listening, is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to say before I go to your final question? No, I think you have given me such a lovely chance to speak from the heart today. And I love you and I'm grateful for you. And I'm so honored to be on this show among the other amazing folks you've had on it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. Okay. Before we end, I do have to give you your final question, which is, and I'm going to say Dr. G, if you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you live in? Hands down, fantasy fiction. I love me some magic, dragons, vampires, genies, portals. Oh, I mean, give me a portal any day of the fucking week and I will be so happy. Uh, yeah, that's that's my thing. YA fantasy fiction is my joy and my recharge and my escape. There it is. There it is. I love it. And I love you. And again, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Karen. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.